At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 20. Nothing can be more uniform and undiversified than the life of the Typees. One tranquil day of ease and happiness follows another in quiet succession. And with these unsophisticated savages, the history of a day is the history of a life. I will therefore, as briefly as I can, describe one of our days in the valley. To begin with the morning. We were not very early risers. The sun would be shooting his golden spikes above the Hepar mountain, ere I threw aside my tapa robe, and girding my long tunic about my waist, sallied out with Fayaway and Cory Cory, and the rest of the household, and bent my steps towards the stream. Here we found congregated all those who dwelt in our section of the valley, and here we bathed with them. The fresh morning air and the cool flowing waters put both soul and body in a glow, and after a half-hour employed in this recreation, we sauntered back to the house, Tinor and Marheyo gathering dry sticks by the way for firewood, some of the young men laying the coconut trees under contribution as they passed beneath them while Cory Cory played his outlandish pranks for my particular diversion, and Fayway and I, not arm in arm to be sure, but sometimes hand in hand, strolled along with feelings of perfect charity for all the world, and a special goodwill towards each other. Our morning meal was soon prepared. The islanders are somewhat abstemious at this repast, reserving the more powerful efforts of their appetite to a later period of the day. For my own part, with the assistance of my valet, who, as I have before stated, always officiated as spoon on these occasions, I ate sparingly from one of Tinor's trenchers of Poe Poe, which was devoted exclusively for my own use, being mixed with the milky meat of ripe coconut. A section of a roasted breadfruit, a small cake of amar, or a mess of koku, two or three bananas, or a mommy apple, an annui, or some other agreeable and nutritious fruit, served from day to day to diversify the meal, which was finished by tossing off the liquid contents of a young coconut or two. While partaking of this simple repast, the inmates of Marheyo's house, after the style of the indolent Romans, reclined in sociable groups upon the divan of mats, and digestion was promoted by cheerful conversation. 
After the morning meal was concluded, pipes were lighted, and among them my own especial pipe, a present from the noble Mahavi. The islanders, who only smoke a whiff or two at a time, and at long intervals, and who keep their pipes going from hand to hand continually, regarded my systematic smoking of four or five pipefuls of tobacco in succession as something quite wonderful. When two or three pipes had circulated freely, the company gradually broke up. Marheyo went to the little hut he was forever building. Tinor began to inspect her rolls of tapa, or employed her busy fingers in plaiting grass mats. The girls anointed themselves with their fragrant oils, dressed their hair, or looked over their curious finery, and compared together their ivory trinkets, fashioned out of boar's tusks or whale's teeth. The young men and warriors produced their spears, paddles, canoe gear, battle clubs, and war conchs, and occupied themselves in carving all sorts of figures upon them with pointed bits of shell or flint, and adorning them, especially the war conchs, with tassels of braided bark and tufts of human hair. Some, immediately after eating, threw themselves once more upon the inviting mats, and resumed the employment of the previous night, sleeping as soundly as if they had not closed their eyes for a week. Others sallied out into the groves, for the purpose of gathering fruit or fibers of bark and leaves, the last two being in constant requisition, and applied to a hundred uses. A few, perhaps, among the girls, would slip into the woods after flowers, or repair to the stream with small calabashes and coconut shells, in order to polish them by friction with a smooth stone in the water. In truth, these innocent people seemed to be at no loss for something to occupy their time, and it would be no light task to enumerate all their employments, or rather, pleasures. My own mornings I spent in a variety of ways. Sometimes I rambled about from house to house, sure of receiving a cordial welcome wherever I went, or from grove to grove, and from one shady place to another, in company with Cory Cory and Fayaway, and a rabble rout of merry young idlers. Sometimes I was too indolent for exercise, and accepting one of the many invitations I was continually receiving, stretched myself out on the mats of some hospitable dwelling, and occupied myself pleasantly, either in watching the proceedings of those around me, or taking part in them myself. Whenever I chose to do the latter, the delight of the islanders was boundless, and there was always a throng of competitors for the honor of instructing me in any particular craft. I soon became quite an accomplished hand at making tapa, could braid a grass sling as well as the best of them, and once, with my knife, carved the handle of a javelin so exquisitely that I have no doubt to this day Karnunu, its owner, preserves it as a surprising specimen of my skill. As noon approached, all those who had wandered forth from our habitation began to return, and when midday was fairly come, scarcely a sound was to be heard in the valley. A deep sleep fell upon all. The luxurious siesta was hardly ever omitted except by old Marheyo, who was so eccentric a character that he seemed to be governed by no fixed principles whatever, but acting just according to the humor of the moment, slept, ate, or tinkered away at his little hut, without regard to the proprieties of time or place. Frequently he might have been seen taking a nap in the sun at noonday, or a bath in the stream at midnight. Once I beheld him perched eighty feet from the ground, in the tuft of a coconut tree, smoking, 
and often I saw him standing up to the waist in water, engaged in plucking out the stray hairs of his beard, using a piece of mussel shell for tweezers. The noontide slumber lasted generally an hour and a half, very often longer, and after the sleepers had arisen from their mats, they again had recourse to their pipes, and then made preparations for the most important meal of the day. I, however, like those gentlemen of leisure who breakfast at home and dine at their club, almost invariably during my intervals of health, enjoyed the afternoon repast with the bachelor chiefs of the tea, who were always rejoiced to see me, and lavishly spread before me all the good things which their larder afforded. Mahavy generally produced among other dainties a baked pig, an article which I have every reason to suppose was provided for my sole gratification. The tea was a right jovial place. It did my heart, as well as my body, good to visit it. Secure from female intrusion, there was no restraint upon the hilarity of the warriors, who, like the gentlemen of Europe after the cloth is drawn and the ladies retire, freely indulged their mirth. After spending a considerable portion of the afternoon at the tea, I usually found myself, as the cool of the evening came on, either sailing on the little lake with Fayaway, or bathing in the waters of the stream with a number of the savages, who at this hour always repaired thither. As the shadows of night approached, Marheyo's household were once more assembled under his roof. Tapers were lit, long and curious chants were raised, interminable stories were told, for which one present was little the wiser, and all sorts of social festivities served to while away the time. The young girls very often danced by moonlight in front of their dwellings. There are a great variety of these dances, in which, however, I never saw the men take part. They all consist of active, romping, mischievous evolutions, in which every limb is brought into requisition. Indeed, the Marquesan girls dance all over, as it were. Not only do their feet dance, but their arms, hands, fingers, ay, their very eyes, seem to dance in their heads. In good sooth, they so sway their floating forms, arch their necks, toss aloft their naked arms, and glide and swim and whirl, that it was almost too much for a quiet, sober-minded, modest young man like myself. The damsels wear nothing but flowers and their compendious gala tunics, and when they plume themselves for the dance, they look like a band of olive-colored sylphides on the point of taking wing. Unless some particular festivity was going forward, the inmates of Marheyo's house retired to their mats rather early in the evening, but not for the night, since, after slumbering lightly for a while, they rose again, relit their tapers, partook of the third and last meal of the day, at which Poe Poe alone was eaten, and then, after inhaling a narcotic whiff from a pipe of tobacco, disposed themselves for the great business of night, sleep. With the Marquesans it might almost be styled the great business of life, for they pass a large portion of their time in the arms of Somnus. The native strength of their constitutions is no way shown more emphatically than in the quantity of sleep they can endure. To many of them, indeed, life is little else than an often interrupted and luxurious nap. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, 
please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 21. Almost every country has its medicinal springs, famed for their healing virtues. The Cheltenham of Typee is embosomed in the deepest solitude, and but seldom receives a visitor. It is situated remote from any dwelling, a little way up the mountain, near the head of the valley, and you approach it by a pathway shaded by the most beautiful foliage, and adorned with a thousand fragrant plants. The mineral waters of Arva Wai ooze forth from the crevices of a rock, and gliding down its mossy side, fall at last in many clustering drops into a natural basin of stone, fringed round with grass and dewy-looking little violet-colored flowers, as fresh and beautiful as the perpetual moisture they enjoy can make them. Footnote for Arva Y. I presume this might be translated into strong waters. Arva is the name bestowed upon a root, the properties of which are both inebriating and medicinal. Y is the Marquesan word for water. End of footnote. The water is held in high estimation by the islanders, some of whom consider it an agreeable as well as a medicinal beverage. They bring it from the mountain in their calabashes, and store it away beneath heaps of leaves in some shady nook near the house. Old Marheyo had a great love for the waters of the spring. Every now and then he lugged off to the mountain a great round demijohn of a calabash, and, panting with his exertions, brought it back filled with his darling fluid. The water tasted like a solution of a dozen disagreeable things, and was sufficiently nauseous to have made the fortune of the proprietor, had the spa been situated in the midst of any civilized community. As I am no chemist, I cannot give a scientific analysis of the water. All I know about the matter is that one day Marheyo in my presence poured out the last drop from his huge calabash, and I observed at the bottom of the vessel a small quantity of gravelly sediment very much resembling our common sand. Whether this is always found in the water, and gives it its peculiar flavor and virtues, or whether its presence was merely incidental, I was not able to ascertain. One day, in returning from this spring by a circuitous path, I came upon a scene which reminded me of Stonehenge, and the architectural labors of the Druid. At the base of one of the mountains, and surrounded on all sides by dense groves, a series of vast terraces of stone rises, step by step, for a considerable distance up the hillside. These terraces cannot be less than one hundred yards in length and twenty in width. Their magnitude, however, is less striking than the immense size of the blocks composing them. Some of the stones, of an oblong shape, are from ten to fifteen feet in length and five or six feet thick. Their sides are quite smooth, but though square and of pretty regular formation, they bear no mark of the chisel. They are laid together without cement, and here and there show gaps between. The topmost terrace and the lower one are somewhat peculiar in their construction. They have both a quadrangular depression in the center, leaving the rest of the terrace elevated several feet above it, in the intervals of the stones, immense trees have taken root, and their broad boughs, stretching far over and interlacing together, support a canopy almost impenetrable to the sun. 
overgrowing the greater part of them, and climbing from one to another, is a wilderness of vines, in whose sinewy embrace many of the stones lie half hidden, while in some places a thick growth of bushes entirely covers them. There is a wild pathway which obliquely crosses two of these terraces, and so profound is the shade, so dense the vegetation, that a stranger to the place might pass along it without being aware of their existence. These structures bear every indication of a very high antiquity, and Cory Cory, who was my authority in all matters of scientific research, gave me to understand that they were coeval with the creation of the world, that the great gods themselves were the builders, and that they would endure until time shall be no more. Cory Cory's prompt explanation, and his attributing the work to a divine origin, at once convinced me that neither he nor the rest of his countrymen knew anything about them. As I gazed upon this monument, doubtless the work of an extinct and forgotten race, thus buried in the green nook of an island at the ends of the earth, the existence of which was yesterday unknown, a stronger feeling of awe came over me than if I had stood musing at the mighty base of the pyramid of Cheops. There are no inscriptions, no sculpture, no clue, by which to conjecture its history, nothing but the dumb stones. How many generations of those majestic trees which overshadow them have grown and flourished and decayed since first they were erected? These remains naturally suggest many interesting reflections. They establish the great age of the island, an opinion which the builders of theories concerning the creation of the various groups in the South Seas are not always inclined to admit. For my own part, I think it just as probable that human beings were living in the valleys of the Marquesas three thousand years ago as that they were inhabiting the land of Egypt. The origin of the island of Nukahiva cannot be imputed to the coral insect, for indefatigable as that wonderful creature is, it would be hardly muscular enough to pile rocks one upon the other more than three thousand feet above the level of the sea. That the land may have been thrown up by a submarine volcano is as possible as anything else. No one can make an affidavit to the contrary, and therefore I will say nothing against the supposition. Indeed, were geologists to assert that the whole continent of America had in like manner been formed by the simultaneous explosion of a train of Etnas laid under the water all the way from the North Pole to the parallel of Cape Horn, I am the last man in the world to contradict them. I have already mentioned that the dwellings of the islanders were almost invariably built upon massive stone foundations, which they call peepees. The dimensions of these, however, as well as of the stones composing them, are comparatively small. But there are other and larger erections of a similar description comprising the morais, or burying grounds, and festival places, in nearly all the valleys of the island. Some of these piles are so extensive, and so great a degree of labor and skill must have been requisite in constructing them, that I can scarcely believe they were built by the ancestors of the present inhabitants. If indeed they were, the race has sadly deteriorated in their knowledge of the mechanic arts. To say nothing of their habitual indolence, by what contrivance within the reach of so simple a people could such enormous masses have been moved or fixed in their places? And how could they with their rude implements have chiseled and hammered them into shape? 
All of these larger peepees, like that of the hula hula ground in the Taipei Valley, bore incontestable marks of great age, and I am disposed to believe that their erection may be ascribed to the same race of men who were the builders of the still more ancient remains I have just described. According to Cory Cory's account, the pipi upon which stands the hula hula ground was built a great many moons ago under the direction of Monu, a great chief and warrior, and, as it would appear, master mason among the Taipees. It was erected for the express purpose to which it is at present devoted, in the incredibly short period of one sun, and was dedicated to the immortal wooden idols by a grand festival which lasted ten days and nights. Among the smaller peepees, upon which stand the dwelling houses of the natives, I never observed any which intimated a recent erection. There are in every part of the valley a great many of these massive stone foundations which have no houses upon them. This is vastly convenient, for whenever an enterprising islander chooses to emigrate a few hundred yards from the place where he was born, all he has to do in order to establish himself in some new locality is to select one of the many unappropriated peepees, and without further ceremony, pitch his bamboo tent upon it. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 22 From the time that my lameness had decreased, I had made a daily practice of visiting Mahavi at the tea, who invariably gave me a most cordial reception. I was always accompanied in these excursions by Fayaway and the ever-present Cory Cory. The former, as soon as we reached the vicinity of the tea, which was rigorously tabooed to the whole female sex, withdrew to a neighboring hut, as if her feminine delicacy restrained her from approaching a habitation which might be regarded as a sort of bachelor's hall. And in good truth it might well have been so considered. Although it was the permanent residence of several distinguished chiefs, and of the noble Mahavi in particular, it was still at certain seasons the favorite haunt of all the jolly, talkative, and elderly savages of the Vale, who resorted thither in the same way that similar characters frequent a tavern in civilized countries. There they would remain hour after hour, chatting, smoking, eating poey-poey, or busily engaged in sleeping for the good of their constitutions. This building appeared to be the headquarters of the valley, where all flying rumors concentrated, and to have seen it filled with a crowd of the natives, all males, conversing in animated clusters, while multitudes were continually coming and going, one would have thought it a kind of savage exchange, where the rise and fall of Polynesian stock was discussed. Mahavi acted as supreme lord over the place, spending the greater portion of his time there, and often, when at particular hours of the day, it was deserted by nearly everyone else except the verd-antique-looking centenarians, who were fixtures in the building, the chief himself was sure to be found enjoying his otium cum dignitate upon the luxurious mats which covered the floor. Whenever I made my appearance, he invariably rose, and, like a gentleman doing the honors of his mansion, invited me to repose myself wherever I pleased, and calling out, Tamari, boy, a little fellow would appear, 
and then retiring for an instant return with some savory mess, from which the chief would press me to regale myself. To tell the truth, Mahavy was indebted to the excellence of his viands for the honor of my repeated visits, a matter which cannot appear singular, when it is borne in mind that bachelors all the world over are famous for serving up unexceptionable repasts. One day, on drawing near to the tea, I observed that extensive preparations were going forward, plainly betokening some approaching festival. Some of the symptoms reminded me of the stir produced among the scullions of a large hotel, where a grand jubilee dinner is about to be given. The natives were hurrying about hither and thither, engaged in various duties, some lugging off to the stream enormous hollow bamboos for the purpose of filling them with water, others chasing furious-looking hogs through the bushes in their endeavors to capture them, and numbers employed in kneading great mountains of poe-poe heaped up in huge wooden vessels. After observing these lively indications for a while, I was attracted to a neighboring grove by a prodigious squeaking which I heard there. On reaching the spot, I found it proceeded from a large hog, which a number of the natives were forcibly holding to the earth, while a muscular fellow, armed with a bludgeon, was ineffectually aiming murderous blows at the skull of the unfortunate porker. Again and again he missed his writhing and struggling victim, but though puffing and panting with his exertions, he still continued them, and after striking a sufficient number of blows to have demolished an entire drove of oxen, with one crashing stroke he laid him dead at his feet. Without letting any blood from the body, it was immediately carried to a fire which had been kindled near at hand, and four savages, taking hold of the carcass by its legs, passed it rapidly to and fro in the flames. In a moment, the smell of burning bristles betrayed the object of this procedure. Having got thus far in the matter, the body was removed to a little distance, and being disemboweled, the entrails were laid aside as choice parts, and the whole carcass thoroughly washed with water. An ample, thick green cloth, composed of the long, thick leaves of a species of palm tree, ingeniously tacked together with little pins of bamboo, was now spread upon the ground, in which the body, being carefully rolled, it was borne to an oven previously prepared to receive it. Here it was at once laid upon the heated stones at the bottom, and covered with thick layers of leaves, the whole being quickly hidden from sight by a mound of earth raised over it. Such is the summary style in which the Taipees convert perverse-minded and rebellious hogs into the most docile and amiable pork, a morsel of which, placed on the tongue, melts like a soft smile from the lips of beauty. I commend their peculiar mode of proceeding to the consideration of all butchers, cooks, and housewives. The hapless porker whose fate I have just rehearsed was not the only one who suffered on that memorable day. Many a dismal grunt, many an imploring squeak, proclaimed what was going on throughout the whole extent of the valley, and I verily believe the first-born of every litter perished before the setting of that fatal sun. The scene around the tea was now most animated. Hogs and poe-poe were baking in numerous ovens, which, heaped up with fresh earth into slight elevations, looked like so many anthills. Scores of the savages were vigorously plying their stone pestles in preparing masses of poe-poe, and numbers were gathering green breadfruit and young coconuts in the surrounding groves. 
while an exceeding great multitude, with a view of encouraging the rest in their labors, stood still, and kept shouting most lustily without intermission. It is a peculiarity among these people, that when engaged in any employment, they always make a prodigious fuss about it. So seldom do they ever exert themselves, that when they do work, they seem determined that so meritorious an action shall not escape the observation of those around. If, for example, they have occasion to remove a stone to a little distance, which perhaps might be carried by two able-bodied men, a whole swarm gather about it, and, after a vast deal of palavering, lift it up among them, every one struggling to get hold of it, and bear it off yelling and panting as if accomplishing some mighty achievement. Seeing them on these occasions, one is reminded of an infinity of black ants clustering about and dragging away to some hole the leg of a deceased fly. Having for some time attentively observed these demonstrations of good cheer, I entered the tea, where Mahavi sat complacently looking out upon the busy scene, and occasionally issuing his orders. The chief appeared to be in an extraordinary flow of spirits, and gave me to understand that on the morrow there would be grand doings in the groves generally, and at the tea in particular, and urged me by no means to absent myself. In commemoration of what event, however, or in honor of what distinguished personage the feast was to be given, altogether passed my comprehension. Mahavi sought to enlighten my ignorance, but he failed as signally as when he had endeavored to initiate me into the perplexing arcana of the taboo. On leaving the tea, Cory Cory, who had as a matter of course accompanied me, observing that my curiosity remained unabated, resolved to make everything plain and satisfactory. With this intent he escorted me through the taboo groves, pointing out to my notice a variety of objects, and endeavored to explain them in such an indescribable jargon of words that it almost put me in bodily pain to listen to him. In particular, he led me to a remarkable pyramidical structure some three yards square at the base, and perhaps ten feet in height, which had lately been thrown up, and occupied a very conspicuous position. It was composed principally of large empty calabashes, with a few polished coconut shells, and looked not unlike a cenotaph of skulls. My Cicerone perceived the astonishment with which I gazed at this monument of savage crockery, and immediately addressed himself to the task of enlightening me. But all in vain, and to this hour the nature of the monument remains a complete mystery to me. As, however, it formed so prominent a feature in the approaching revels, I bestowed upon the latter, in my own mind, the title of the Feast of Calabashes. The following morning, awaking rather late, I perceived the whole of Marheyo's family busily engaged in preparing for the festival. The old warrior himself was arranging in round balls the two gray locks of hair that were suffered to grow from the crown of his head. His earrings and spear, both well polished, lay beside him, while the highly decorative pair of shoes hung suspended from a projecting cane against the side of the house. The young men were similarly employed, and the fair damsels, including Fayaway, were anointing themselves with Akka, arranging their long tresses, and performing other matters connected with the duties of the toilette. Having completed their preparations, the girls now exhibited themselves in gala costume, the most conspicuous feature of which was a necklace of beautiful white flowers, with the stems removed, 
and strung closely together upon a single fibre of tapa. Corresponding ornaments were inserted in their ears and woven garlands upon their heads. About their waist they wore a short tunic of spotless white tapa, and some of them superadded to this a mantle of the same material, tied in an elaborate bow upon the left shoulder, and falling about the figure in picturesque folds. Thus arrayed, I would have matched the charming Fayaway against any beauty in the world. People may say what they will about the taste evinced by our fashionable ladies in dress. Their jewels, their feathers, their silks, and their furbelows would have sunk into utter insignificance beside the exquisite simplicity of attire adopted by the nymphs of the Vale on this festive occasion. I should like to have seen a gallery of coronation beauties at Westminster Abbey, confronted for a moment by this band of island girls, their stiffness, formality, and affectation contrasted with the artless vivacity and unconcealed natural graces of these savage maidens. It would be the Venus de Medici, placed beside a milliner's doll. It was not long before Cory Cory and myself were left alone in the house, the rest of its inmates having departed for the taboo groves. My valet was all impatience to follow them, and was as fidgety about my dilatory movements as a diner out waiting hat in hand at the bottom of the stairs for some lagging companion. At last, yielding to his importunities, I set out for the tea. As we passed the houses peeping out from the groves through which our route lay, I noticed that they were entirely deserted by their inhabitants. When we reached the rock that abruptly terminated the path and concealed from us the festive scene, wild shouts and a confused blending of voices assured me that the occasion, whatever it might be, had drawn together a great multitude. Cory Cory, previous to mounting the elevation, paused for a moment, like a dandy at a ballroom door, to put a hasty finish to his toilette. During this short interval, the thought struck me that I ought myself, perhaps, to be taking some little pains with my appearance. But as I had no holiday raiment, I was not a little puzzled to devise some means of decorating myself. However, as I felt desirous to create a sensation, I determined to do all that lay in my power, and knowing that I could not delight the savages more than by conforming to their style of dress, I removed from my person the large robe of tapa which I was accustomed to wear over my shoulders whenever I sallied into the open air, and remained merely girt about with a short tunic descending from my waist to my knees. My quick-witted attendant fully appreciated the compliment I was paying to the costume of his race, and began more sedulously to arrange the folds of the one only garment which remained to me. Whilst he was doing this I caught sight of a knot of young lasses, who were sitting near us on the grass, surrounded by heaps of flowers which they were forming into garlands. I motioned to them to bring some of their handiwork to me, and in an instant a dozen wreaths were at my disposal. One of them I put round the apology for a hat which I had been forced to construct for myself out of palmetto leaves, and some of the others I converted into a splendid girdle. These operations finished, with the slow and dignified step of a full-dressed bow, I ascended the rock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 
This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 23 The whole population of the valley seemed to be gathered within the precincts of the grove. In the distance could be seen the long front of the tea, its immense piazza swarming with men, arrayed in every variety of fantastic costume, and all vociferating with animated gestures, while the whole interval between it and the place where I stood was enlivened by groups of females, fancifully decorated, dancing, capering, and uttering wild exclamations. As soon as they descried me, they set up a shout of welcome, and a band of them came dancing towards me, chanting as they approached some wild recitative. The change in my garb seemed to transport them with delight, and clustering about me on all sides, they accompanied me towards the tea. When, however, we drew near it, these joyous nymphs paused in their career, and parting on either side permitted me to pass on to the now densely thronged building. So soon as I mounted to the pee, pee I saw at a glance that the revels were fairly under way. What lavish plenty reigned around! Warwick feasting his retainers with beef and ale, was a niggard to the noble Mahavy. All along the piazza of the tea were arranged elaborately carved canoe-shaped vessels, some twenty feet in length, filled with newly made poe-poe, and sheltered from the sun by the broad leaves of the banana. At intervals were heaps of green breadfruit, raised in pyramidical stacks, resembling the regular piles of heavy shot to be seen in the yard of an arsenal. Inserted into the interstices of the huge stones which formed the pee-pee were large boughs of trees, hanging from the branches of which, and screened from the sun by their foliage, were innumerable little packages with leafy coverings, containing the meat of the numerous hogs which had been slain, done up in this manner to make it more accessible to the crowd. Leaning against the railing of the piazza were an immense number of long, heavy bamboos, plugged at the lower end, and with their projecting muzzles stuffed with a wad of leaves. These were filled with water from the stream, and each of them might hold from four to five gallons. The banquet being thus spread, naught remained but for every one to help himself at his pleasure. Accordingly, not a moment passed, but the transplanted boughs I have mentioned were rifled by the throng of the fruit they certainly had never borne before. Calabashes of poe poe were continually being replenished from the extensive receptacle in which that article was stored, and multitudes of little fires were kindled about the tea for the purpose of roasting the breadfruit. Within the building itself was presented a most extraordinary scene. The immense lounge of mats lying between the parallel rows of the trunks of coconut trees and extending the entire length of the house, at least two hundred feet, was covered by the reclining forms of a host of chiefs and warriors, who were eating at a great rate, or soothing the cares of Polynesian life in the sedative fumes of tobacco. The smoke was inhaled from large pipes, the bowls of which, made out of small coconut shells, were curiously carved in strange heathenish devices. These were passed from mouth to mouth by the recumbent smokers, each of whom, taking two or three prodigious whiffs, handed the pipe to his neighbor, sometimes for that purpose stretching indolently across the body of some dozing individual whose exertions at the dinner-table had already induced sleep. 
The tobacco used among the Taipees was of a very mild and pleasing flavor, and as I always saw it in leaves, and the natives appeared pretty well supplied with it, I was led to believe that it must have been the growth of the valley. Indeed, Cory Cory gave me to understand that this was the case, but I never saw a single plant growing on the island. At Nukahiva, and I believe in all the other valleys, the weed is very scarce, being only obtained in small quantities from foreigners, and smoking is consequently with the inhabitants of these places a very great luxury. How it was that the Taipees were so well furnished with it I cannot divine. I should think them too indolent to devote any attention to its culture, and indeed as far as my observation extended, not a single atom of the soil was under any other cultivation than that of shower and sunshine. The tobacco plant, however, like the sugar cane, may grow wild in some remote part of the vale. There were many in the tea for whom the tobacco did not furnish a sufficient stimulus, and who accordingly had recourse to arva, as a more powerful agent in producing the desired effect. Arva is a root very generally dispersed over the South Seas, and from it is extracted a juice, the effects of which upon the system are at first stimulating in a moderate degree, but it soon relaxes the muscles, and exerting a narcotic influence produces a luxurious sleep. In the valley this beverage was universally prepared in the following way. Some half-dozen young boys seated themselves in a circle around an empty wooden vessel, each one of them being supplied with a certain quantity of the roots of the arva, broken into small bits and laid by his side. A coconut goblet of water was passed around the juvenile company, who, rinsing their mouths with its contents, proceeded to the business before them. This merely consisted in thoroughly masticating the arva, and throwing it mouthful after mouthful, into the receptacle provided. When a sufficient quantity had been thus obtained, water was poured upon the mass, and being stirred about with the forefinger of the right hand, the preparation was soon in readiness for use. The arva has medicinal qualities. Upon the Sandwich Islands, it has been employed with no small success in the treatment of scrofulous affections, and in combating the ravages of a disease for whose frightful inroads the ill-starred inhabitants of that group are indebted to their foreign benefactors. But the tenants of the Taipei Valley, as yet exempt from these inflictions, generally employ the arva as a minister to social enjoyment, and a calabash of the liquid circulates among them as the bottle with us. Mahavi, who was greatly delighted with the change in my costume, gave me a cordial welcome. He had reserved for me a most delectable mess of koku, well knowing my partiality for that dish and had likewise selected three or four young coconuts, several roasted breadfruit, and a magnificent bunch of bananas, for my especial comfort and gratification. These various matters were at once placed before me, but Kori Kori deemed the banquet entirely insufficient for my wants, until he had supplied me with one of the leafy packages of pork, which, notwithstanding the somewhat hasty manner in which it had been prepared, possessed a most excellent flavor, and was surprisingly sweet and tender. Pork is not a staple article of food among the people of the Marquesas. Consequently, they pay little attention to the breeding of the swine. The hogs are permitted to roam at large in the groves, where they obtain no small part of their nourishment from the coconuts which continually fall from the trees. But it is only after infinite labor and difficulty 
that the hungry animal can pierce the husk and shell so as to get at the meat. I have frequently been amused at seeing one of them, after crunching the obstinate nut with his teeth for a long time unsuccessfully, get into a violent passion with it. He would then root furiously under the coconut, and with a fling of his snout, toss it before him on the ground. Following it up, he would crunch at it again savagely for a moment, and the next knock it on one side, pausing immediately after, as if wondering how it could so suddenly have disappeared. In this way the persecuted coconuts were often chased half across the valley. The second day of the Feast of Calabashes was ushered in by still more uproarious noises than the first. The skins of innumerable sheep seemed to be resounding to the blows of an army of drummers. Startled from my slumbers by the din, I leaped up and found the whole household engaged in making preparations for immediate departure. Curious to discover of what strange events these novel sounds might be the precursors, and not a little desirous to catch a sight of the instruments which produced the terrific noise, I accompanied the natives as soon as they were in readiness to depart for the taboo groves. The comparatively open space that extended from the tea toward the rock, to which I have before alluded as forming the ascent to the place, was, with the building itself, now altogether deserted by the men, the whole distance being filled by bands of females, shouting and dancing under the influence of some strange excitement. I was amused at the appearance of four or five old women, who, in a state of utter nudity, with their arms extended flatly down their sides and holding themselves perfectly erect, were leaping stiffly into the air, like so many sticks bobbing to the surface, after being pressed perpendicularly into the water. They preserved the utmost gravity of countenance, and continued their extraordinary movements without a single moment's cessation. They did not appear to attract the observation of the crowd around them, but I must candidly confess that for my own part, I stared at them most pertinaciously. Desirous of being enlightened with regard to the meaning of this peculiar diversion, I turned inquiringly to Kori Kori. That learned Taipee immediately proceeded to explain the whole matter thoroughly. But all that I could comprehend from what he said was that the leaping figures before me were bereaved widows, whose partners had been slain in battle many moons previously and who, at every festival, gave public evidence in this manner of their calamities. It was evident that Kori Kori considered this an all-sufficient reason for so indecorous a custom, but I must say that it did not satisfy me as to its propriety. Leaving these afflicted females, we passed on to the Hula Hula ground. Within the spacious quadrangle, the whole population of the valley seemed to be assembled, and the sight presented was truly remarkable. Beneath the sheds of bamboo which opened towards the interior of the square, reclined the principal chiefs and warriors, while a miscellaneous throng lay at their ease under the enormous trees, which spread a majestic canopy overhead. Upon the terraces of the gigantic altars, at either end, were deposited green breadfruit in baskets of coconut leaves, large rolls of tapa, bunches of ripe bananas, clusters of mami apples, the golden-hued fruit of the artu tree, and baked hogs, laid out in large wooden trenches, fancifully decorated with freshly plucked leaves, whilst a variety of rude implements of war were piled in confused heaps before the ranks of hideous idols. 
Fruits of various kinds were likewise suspended in leaf and baskets, from the tops of poles planted uprightly, and at regular intervals along the lower terraces of both altars. At their base were arranged two parallel rows of cumbersome drums, standing at least fifteen feet in height, and formed from the hollow trunks of large trees. Their heads were covered with shark skins, and their barrels were elaborately carved with various quaint figures and devices. At regular intervals they were bound round by a species of cinnate of various colors, and strips of native cloth flattened upon them here and there. Behind these instruments were built slight platforms upon which stood a number of young men, who, beating violently with the palms of their hands upon the drumheads, produced those outrageous sounds which had awakened me in the morning. Every few minutes these musical performers hopped down from their elevation into the crowd below, and their places were immediately supplied by fresh recruits. Thus an incessant din was kept up that might have startled pandemonium. Precisely in the middle of the quadrangle were placed perpendicularly in the ground a hundred or more slender, fresh-cut poles, stripped of their bark, and decorated at the end with a floating pennon of white tapa, the whole being fenced about with a little picket of canes. For what purpose these singular ornaments were intended, I in vain endeavored to discover. Another most striking feature of the performance was exhibited by a score of old men, who sat cross-legged in the little pulpits which encircled the trunks of the immense trees growing in the middle of the enclosure. These venerable gentlemen, who I presume were the priests, kept up an uninterrupted monotonous chant, which was nearly drowned in the roar of drums. In the right hand they held a finely woven grass fan, with a heavy black wooden handle, curiously chased. These fans they kept in continual motion. But no attention whatever seemed to be paid to the drummers or to the old priests, the individuals who composed the vast crowd present being entirely taken up in chatting and laughing with one another, smoking, drinking arva, and eating. For all the observation it attracted, or the good it achieved, the whole savage orchestra might with great advantage to its own members and the company in general have ceased the prodigious uproar they were making. In vain I questioned Kori Kori and others of the natives as to the meaning of the strange things that were going on. All their explanations were conveyed in such a mass of outlandish gibberish and gesticulation that I gave up the attempt in despair. All that day the drums resounded, the priests chanted, and the multitude feasted and roared till sunset, when the throng dispersed and the taboo groves were again abandoned to quiet and repose. The next day the same scene was repeated until night, when this singular festival terminated. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 24 Although I had been baffled in my attempts to learn the origin of the Feast of Calabashes, yet it seemed very plain to me that it was principally, if not wholly, of a religious character. As a religious solemnity, however, 
it had not at all corresponded with the horrible descriptions of Polynesian worship which we have received in some published narratives, and especially in those accounts of the evangelized islands with which the missionaries have favored us. Did not the sacred character of these persons render the purity of their intentions unquestionable, I should certainly be led to suppose that they had exaggerated the evils of paganism, in order to enhance the merit of their own disinterested labors. In a certain work incidentally treating of the Washington or Northern Marquesas Islands, I have seen the frequent immolation of human victims upon the altars of their gods, positively and repeatedly charged upon the inhabitants. The same work gives also a rather minute account of their religion, enumerates a great many of their superstitions, and makes known the particular designations of numerous orders of the priesthood. One would almost imagine, from the long list that is given of cannibal primates, bishops, archdeacons, prebendaries, and other inferior ecclesiastics, that the sacerdotal order far outnumbered the rest of the population, and that the poor natives were more severely priest-ridden than even the inhabitants of the papal states. These accounts are likewise calculated to leave upon the reader's mind an impression that human victims are daily cooked and served up upon the altars, that heathenish cruelties of every description are continually practiced, and that these ignorant pagans are in a state of the extremest wretchedness in consequence of the grossness of their superstitions. Be it observed, however, that all this information is given by a man who, according to his own statement, was only at one of the islands and remained there but two weeks, sleeping every night on board his ship, and taking little kid-glove excursions ashore in the daytime, attended by an armed party. Now all I can say is that in all my excursions through the valley of Taipei, I never saw any of these alleged enormities. If any of them are practiced upon the Marquesas Islands, they must certainly have come to my knowledge while living for months with a tribe of savages, wholly unchanged from their original primitive condition, and reputed the most ferocious in the South Seas. The fact is, that there is a vast deal of unintentional humbuggery in some of the accounts we have from scientific men concerning the religious institutions of Polynesia. These learned tourists generally obtain the greater part of their information from the retired old South Sea rovers, who have domesticated themselves among the barbarous tribes of the Pacific. Jack, who has long been accustomed to the long bow, and to spin tough yarns on a ship's forecastle, invariably officiates as showman of the island on which he has settled, and having mastered a few dozen words of the language, is supposed to know all about the people who speak it. A natural desire to make himself of consequence in the eyes of the strangers prompts him to lay claim to a much greater knowledge of such matters than he actually possesses. In reply to incessant queries, he communicates not only all he knows, but a good deal more, and if there be any information deficient, still he is at no loss to supply it. The avidity with which his anecdotes are noted down tickles his vanity and his powers of invention increase with the credulity of his auditors. He knows just the sort of information wanted, and furnishes it to any extent. This is not a supposed case. I have met with several individuals like the one described, and I have been present at two or three of their interviews with strangers. 
Now, when the scientific voyager arrives at home with his collection of wonders, he attempts, perhaps, to give a description of some of the strange people he has been visiting. Instead of representing them as a community of lusty savages who are leading a merry, idle, innocent life, he enters into a very circumstantial and learned narrative of certain unaccountable superstitions and practices, about which he knows as little as the islanders do themselves. Having had little time and scarcely any opportunity to become acquainted with the customs he pretends to describe, he writes them down one after another in an off-hand, haphazard style. And were the book thus produced to be translated into the tongue of the people of whom it purports to give the history, it would appear quite as wonderful to them as it does to the American public, and much more improbable. For my own part, I am free to confess my almost entire inability to gratify any curiosity that may be felt with regard to the theology of the valley. I doubt whether the inhabitants themselves could do so. They are either too lazy or too sensible to worry themselves about abstract points of religious belief. While I was among them, they never held any synods or councils to settle the principles of their faith by agitating them. An unbounded liberty of conscience seemed to prevail. Those who pleased to do so were allowed to repose implicit faith in an ill-favored god with a large bottle-nose and fat shapeless arms crossed upon his breast, whilst others worshipped an image which, having no likeness either in heaven or on earth, could hardly be called an idol. As the islanders always maintained a discreet reserve with regard to my own peculiar views on religion, I thought it would be excessively ill-bred in me to pry into theirs. But, although my knowledge of the religious faith of the Taipees was unavoidably limited, one of their superstitious observances with which I became acquainted interested me greatly. In one of the most secluded portions of the valley, within a stone's cast of Fayaway's Lake, for so I christened the scene of our island yachting, and hard by a growth of palms, which stood ranged in order along both banks of the stream, waving their green arms as if to do honor to its passage, was the mausoleum of a deceased warrior chief. Like all the other edifices of any note, it was raised upon a small peepee of stones, which, being of unusual height, was a conspicuous object from a distance. A light thatching of bleached palmetto leaves hung over it like a self-supported canopy, for it was not until you came very near that you saw it was supported by four slender columns of bamboo rising at each corner to a little more than the height of a man. A clear area of a few yards surrounded the peepee, and was enclosed by four trunks of coconut trees resting at the angles on massive blocks of stone. The place was sacred. The sign of the inscrutable taboo was seen in the shape of a mystic roll of white tapa, suspended by a twisted cord of the same material from the top of a slight pole planted within the enclosure. Footnote. White appears to be the sacred color among the Marquesans. End of footnote. The sanctity of the spot appeared never to have been violated. The stillness of the grave was there, and the calm solitude around was beautiful and touching. The soft shadows of those lofty palm trees, I can see them now, hanging over the little temple, as if to keep out the intrusive sun. On all sides, as you approached this silent spot, you caught sight of the dead chief's effigy, 
seated in the stern of a canoe, which was raised on a light frame a few inches above the level of the peepee. The canoe was about seven feet in length, of a rich, dark-colored wood, handsomely carved and adorned in many places with variegated bindings of stained sinate, into which were ingeniously wrought a number of sparkling seashells, and a belt of the same shells ran all round it. The body of the figure, of whatever material it might have been made, was effectually concealed in a heavy robe of brown tapa, revealing only the hands and head, the latter skillfully carved in wood, and surmounted by a superb arch of plumes. These plumes, in the subdued and gentle gales which found access to this sequestered spot, were never for one moment at rest, but kept nodding and waving over the chief's brow. The long leaves of the palmetto drooped over the eaves, and through them you saw the warrior holding his paddle with both hands in the act of rowing, leaning forward and inclining his head, as if eager to hurry on his voyage. Glaring at him forever and face to face was a polished human skull, which crowned the prow of the canoe. The spectral figurehead, reversed in its position, glancing backwards, seemed to mock the impatient attitude of the warrior. When I first visited this singular place with Kori Kori, he told me, or at least I so understood him, that the chief was paddling his way to the realms of bliss, and breadfruit, the Polynesian heaven, where every moment the breadfruit trees dropped their ripened spheres to the ground, and where there was no end to the coconuts and bananas. There they reposed through the live-long eternity, upon mats much finer than those of Taipee, and every day bathed their glowing limbs in rivers of coconut oil. In that happy land there were plenty of plumes and feathers, and boar's tusks and sperm whale teeth, far preferable to all the shining trinkets and gay tapa of the white men, and best of all, women far lovelier than the daughters of earth were there in abundance. A very pleasant place, Kori Kori said it was, but after all, not much pleasanter, he thought, than Taipee. Did he not then, I asked him, wish to accompany the warrior? Oh no, he was very happy where he was, but supposed that some time or other he would go in his own canoe. Thus far, I think, I clearly comprehended Kori Kori, but there was a singular expression he made use of at the time, enforced by as singular a gesture, the meaning of which I would have given much to penetrate. I am inclined to believe it must have been a proverb he uttered, for I afterwards heard him repeat the same words several times, and in what appeared to me to be a somewhat similar sense. Indeed, Kori Kori had a great variety of short, smart-sounding sentences, with which he frequently enlivened his discourse, and he introduced them with an air which plainly intimated that, in his opinion, they settled the matter in question, whatever it might be. Could it have been, then, that when I asked him whether he desired to go to this heaven of breadfruit, coconuts, and young ladies, which he had been describing, he answered by saying something equivalent to our old adage, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. If he did, Cory Cory was a discreet and sensible fellow, and I cannot sufficiently admire his shrewdness. Whenever, in the course of my rambles through the valley, I happened to be near the chief's mausoleum, I always turned aside to visit it. The place had a peculiar charm for me. I hardly know why, but so it was. 
as I leaned over the railing and gazed upon the strange effigy, and watched the play of the feathery headdress, stirred by the same breeze which in low tones breathed amidst the lofty palm-trees, I loved to yield myself up to the fanciful superstition of the islanders, and could almost believe that the grim warrior was bound heavenward. In this mood, when I turned to depart, I bade him, Godspeed and a pleasant voyage. I paddle away, brave chieftain, to the land of spirits. To the material eye thou makest but little progress, but with the eye of faith I see thy canoe cleaving the bright waves, which die away on those dimly looming shores of paradise. This strange superstition affords another evidence of the fact that however ignorant man may be, he still feels within him his immortal spirit yearning after the unknown future. Although the religious theories of the islands were a complete mystery to me, their practical everyday operation could not be concealed. I frequently passed the little temples reposing in the shadows of the taboo groves, and beheld the offerings, moldy fruit spread out upon a rude altar, or hanging in half-decayed baskets around some uncouth, jolly-looking image. I was present during the continuance of the festival. I daily beheld the grinning idols marshalled rank and file in the hula-hula ground, and was often in the habit of meeting those whom I supposed to be the priests. But the temples seemed abandoned to solitude. The festival had been nothing more than a jovial mingling of the tribe. The idols were quite as harmless as any other logs of wood, and the priests were the merriest dogs in the valley. In fact, religious affairs in Taipei were at a very low ebb. All such matters sat very lightly upon the thoughtless inhabitants, and in the celebration of many of their strange rites, they appeared merely to seek a sort of childish amusement. A curious evidence of this was given in a remarkable ceremony in which I frequently saw Mahavi and several other chiefs and warriors of note take part, but never a single female. Among those whom I looked upon as forming the priesthood of the valley, there was one in particular who often attracted my notice, and whom I could not help regarding as the head of the order. He was a noble-looking man, in the prime of his life, and of a most benignant aspect. The authority this man, whose name was Colory, seemed to exercise over the rest, the episcopal part he took in the Feast of Calabashes, his sleek and complacent appearance, the mystic characters which were tattooed upon his chest, and above all the mitre he frequently wore, in the shape of a towering headdress consisting of part of a coconut branch, the stalk planted uprightly on his brow, and the leaflets gathered together and passed round the temples and behind the ears, all these pointed him out as Lord Primate of Taipei. Colliery was a sort of knight templar, a soldier-priest, for he often wore the dress of a Marquesan warrior, and always carried a long spear, which, instead of terminating in a paddle at the lower end, after the general fashion of these weapons, was curved into a heathenish-looking little image. This instrument, however, might perhaps have been emblematic of his double functions. With one end in carnal combat he transfixed the enemies of his tribe, and with the other as a pastoral crook he kept in order his spiritual flock. But this is not all I have to say about Colliery. 
His martial grace very often carried about with him what seemed to me the half of a broken war club. It was swathed round with ragged bits of white tapa, and the upper part, which was intended to represent a human head, was embellished with a strip of scarlet cloth of European manufacture. It required little observation to discover that this strange object was revered as a god. By the side of the big and lusty images standing sentinel over the altars of the hula-hula ground, it seemed a mere pygmy in tatters. But appearances all the world over are deceptive. Little men are sometimes very potent, and rags sometimes cover very extensive pretensions. In fact, this funny little image was the crack god of the island, lording it over all the wooden lubbers who looked so grim and dreadful. Its name was Moa Artua. Footnote. The word Artua, although having some other significations, is in nearly all the Polynesian dialects used as the general designation of the gods. End of footnote. And it was in honor of Moa Artua, and for the entertainment of those who believe in him, that the curious ceremony I am about to describe was observed. Mahavi and the chieftains of the tea have just risen from their noontide slumbers. There are no affairs of state to dispose of, and having eaten two or three breakfasts in the course of the morning, the magnates of the valley feel no appetite as yet for dinner. How are their leisure moments to be occupied? They smoke, they chat, and at last one of their number makes a proposition to the rest, who joyfully acquiescing, he darts out of the house, leaps from the peepee, and disappears in the grove. Soon you see him returning with Colory, who bears the god Moa Artua in his arms, and carries in one hand a small trough, hollowed out in the likeness of a canoe. The priest comes along dandling his charge, as if it were a lachrymose infant he was endeavoring to put into a good humor. Presently, entering the tea, he seats himself on the mats as composedly as a juggler about to perform his sleight-of-hand tricks, and with the chiefs disposed in a circle around him, commences his ceremony. In the first place he gives Moa Artua an affectionate hug, then caressingly lays him to his breast, and finally whispers something in his ear, the rest of the company listening eagerly for a reply. But the baby god is deaf or dumb, perhaps both, for never a word does he utter. At last, Colory speaks a little louder, and soon growing angry, comes boldly out with what he has to say, and bawls to him. He put me in mind of a choleric fellow, who, after trying in vain to communicate a secret to a deaf man, all at once flies into a passion, and screams it out so that everyone may hear. Still, Moa Artua remains as quiet as ever, and Colory, seemingly losing his temper, fetches him a box over the head, strips him of his tapa and red cloth, and laying him in a state of nudity in the little trough, covers him from sight. At this proceeding, all present loudly applaud, and signify their approval by uttering the adjective motarki with violent emphasis. Colory, however, is so desirous his conduct should meet with unqualified approbation that he inquires of each individual separately whether, under existing circumstances, he has not done perfectly right in shutting up Moa Artua. The invariable response is, Ah, ah, yes, yes, 
repeated over again and again, in a manner which ought to quiet the scruples of the most conscientious. After a few moments, Colory brings forth his doll again, and while arraying it very carefully in the tapa and red cloth, alternately fondles and chides it. The toilette being completed, he once more speaks to it aloud. The whole company hereupon show the greatest interest, while the priest holding Moa Artua to his ear interprets to them what he pretends the god is confidentially communicating to him. Some items of intelligence appear to tickle all present amazingly, for one claps his hands in a rapture, another shouts with merriment, and a third leaps to his feet and capers about like a madman. What under the sun Moa Artua on these occasions had to say to Kalari I never could find out, but I could not help thinking that the former showed a sad want of spirit in being disciplined into making those disclosures, which at first he seemed bent on withholding. Whether the priest honestly interpreted what he believed the divinity said to him, or whether he was not all the while guilty of a vile humbug, I shall not presume to decide. At any rate, whatever as coming from the god was imparted to those present seemed to be generally of a complimentary nature, a fact which illustrates the sagacity of Colory, or else the time-serving disposition of this hardly used deity. Moa Artua, having nothing more to say, his bearer goes to nursing him again, in which occupation, however, he is soon interrupted by a question put by one of the warriors to the god. Colory hereupon snatches it up to his ear again, and after listening attentively, once more officiates as the organ of communication. A multitude of questions and answers having passed between the parties, much to the satisfaction of those who propose them, the god is put tenderly to bed in the trough, and the whole company unite in a long chaunt, led off by colliery. This ended, the ceremony is over, the chiefs rise to their feet in high good humor, and my lord archbishop, after chatting a while and regaling himself with a whiff or two from a pipe of tobacco, tucks the canoe under his arm and marches off with it. The whole of these proceedings were like those of a parcel of children playing with dolls and baby-houses. For a youngster, scarcely ten inches high, and with so few early advantages as he doubtless had had, Moa Artua was certainly a precocious little fellow, if he really said all that was imputed to him. But for what reason this poor devil of a deity, thus cuffed about, cajoled, and shut up in a box, was held in greater estimation than the full-grown and dignified personages of the taboo groves, I cannot divine. And yet Mahavi, and other chiefs of unquestionable veracity, to say nothing of the primate himself, assured me over and over again that Moa Artua was the tutelary deity of Typee, and was more to be held in honor than a whole battalion of the clumsy idols in the hula-hula grounds. Kori Kori, who seemed to have devoted considerable attention to the study of theology, as he knew the names of all the graven images in the valley, and often repeated them over to me, likewise entertained some rather enlarged ideas with regard to the character and pretensions of Moa Artua. He once gave me to understand, with a gesture there was no misconceiving, that if he, Moa Artua, were so minded, he could cause a coconut tree to sprout out of his, Kori Kori's, head, and that it would be the easiest thing in life for him, Moa Artua, to take the whole island of Nukahiva in his mouth and dive down to the bottom of the sea with it. 
But in sober seriousness, I hardly knew what to make of the religion of the valley. There was nothing that so much perplexed the illustrious cook in his intercourse with the South Sea Islanders as their sacred rites. Although this prince of navigators was in many instances assisted by interpreters in the prosecution of his researches, he still frankly acknowledges that he was at a loss to obtain anything like a clear insight into the puzzling arcana of their faith. A similar admission has been made by other eminent voyagers, by Carteret, Byron, Kotzebue, and Vancouver. For my own part, although hardly a day passed while I remained upon the island that I did not witness some religious ceremony or other, it was very much like seeing a parcel of Freemasons making secret signs to each other. I saw everything, but could comprehend nothing. On the whole, I am inclined to believe that the islanders in the Pacific have no fixed and definite ideas whatever on the subject of religion. I am persuaded that Colliery himself would be effectually posed were he called upon to draw up the articles of his faith and pronounce the creed by which he hoped to be saved. In truth, the Taipees, so far as their actions evince, submitted to no laws, human or divine, always excepting the thrice mysterious taboo. The independent electors of the valley were not to be browbeaten by chiefs, priests, idols, or devils. As for the luckless idols, they received more hard knocks than supplications. I do not wonder that some of them looked so grim, and stood so bolt upright as if fearful of looking to the right or the left, lest they should give any one offense. The fact is, they had to carry themselves pretty straight, or suffer the consequences. The worshippers were such a precious set of fickle-minded and irreverent heathens that there was no telling when they might topple one of them over, break it to pieces, and making a fire with it on the very altar itself, fall to roasting the offerings of breadfruit, and eat them in spite of its teeth. In how little reverence these unfortunate deities were held by the natives was on one occasion most convincingly proved to me. Walking with Kori Kori through the deepest recesses of the groves, I perceived a curious-looking image, about six feet in height, which originally had been placed upright against a low peepee, surmounted by a ruinous bamboo temple, but having become fatigued and weak in the knees, was now carelessly leaning against it. The idol was partly concealed by the foliage of a tree which stood near, and whose leafy boughs drooped over the pile of stones, as if to protect the rude fane from the decay to which it was rapidly hastening. The image itself was nothing more than a grotesquely shaped log, carved in the likeness of a portly naked man with the arms clasped over the head, the jaws thrown wide apart, and its thick shapeless legs bowed into an arch. It was much decayed. The lower part was overgrown with a bright silky moss, Thin spears of grass sprouted from the distended mouth and fringed the outline of the head and arms. His godship had literally attained a green old age. All its prominent points were bruised and battered, or entirely rotted away. The nose had taken its departure, and from the general appearance of the head it might have been supposed that the wooden divinity, in despair at the neglect of its worshippers, had been trying to beat its own brains out against the surrounding trees. I drew near to inspect more closely this strange object of idolatry, but halted reverently at the distance of two or three paces, out of regard to the religious prejudices of my valet. 
As soon, however, as Cory Cory perceived that I was in one of my inquiring scientific moods, to my astonishment he sprang to the side of the idol, and pushing it away from the stones against which it rested, endeavored to make it stand upon its legs. But the divinity had lost the use of them altogether, and while Cory Cory was trying to prop it up, by placing a stick between it and the pee the monster fell clumsily to the ground, and would infallibly have broken its neck, had not Cory Cory providentially broken its fall by receiving its whole weight on his own half-crushed back. I never saw the honest fellow in such a rage before. He leaped furiously to his feet, and seizing the stick began beating the poor image, every moment or two pausing and talking to it in the most violent manner, as if upbraiding it for the accident. When his indignation had subsided a little, he whirled the idol about most profanely, so as to give me an opportunity of examining it on all sides. I am quite sure I never should have presumed to have taken such liberties with the god myself, and I was not a little shocked at Cory Cory's impiety. This anecdote speaks for itself. When one of the inferior order of natives could show such contempt for a venerable and decrepit god of the groves, what the state of religion must be among the people in general is easily to be imagined. In truth, I regard the Taipees as a backslidden generation. They are sunk in religious sloth, and require a spiritual revival. A long prosperity of breadfruit and coconuts has rendered them remiss in the performance of their higher obligations. The wood-wrought malady is spreading among the idols. The fruit upon their altars is becoming offensive. The temples themselves need rethatching. The tattooed clergy are altogether too light-hearted and lazy, and their flocks are going astray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville Chapter 25 Although I had been unable during the late festival to obtain information on many interesting subjects which had much excited my curiosity, still that important event had not passed by without adding materially to my general knowledge of the islanders. I was especially struck by the physical strength and beauty which they displayed, by their great superiority in these respects over the inhabitants of the neighboring bay of Nukahiva, and by the singular contrasts they presented among themselves in their various shades of complexion. In beauty of form, they surpassed anything I had ever seen. Not a single instance of natural deformity was observable in all the throng attending the revels. Occasionally I noticed among the men the scars of wounds they had received in battle, and sometimes, though very seldom, the loss of a finger, an eye, or an arm, attributable to the same cause. With these exceptions, every individual appeared free from those blemishes which sometimes mar the effect of an otherwise perfect form. But their physical excellence did not merely consist in an exemption from these evils. Nearly every individual of their number might have been taken for a sculptor's model. When I remembered that these islanders derived no advantage from dress, but appeared in all the naked simplicity of nature, 
I could not avoid comparing them with the fine gentlemen and dandies who promenade such unexceptionable figures in our frequented thoroughfares. Stripped of the cunning artifices of the tailor, and standing forth in the garb of Eden, what a sorry set of round-shouldered, spindle-shanked, crane-necked varlets would civilized men appear! Stuffed calves, padded breasts, and scientifically cut pantaloons would then avail them nothing, and the effect would be truly deplorable. Nothing in the appearance of the islanders struck me more forcibly than the whiteness of their teeth. The novelist always compares the masticators of his heroine to ivory, but I boldly pronounce the teeth of the Taipees to be far more beautiful than ivory itself. The jaws of the oldest greybeards among them were much better garnished than those of most of the youths of civilized countries, while the teeth of the young and middle-aged, in their purity and whiteness, were actually dazzling to the eye. This marvelous whiteness of the teeth is to be ascribed to the pure vegetable diet of these people, and the uninterrupted healthfulness of their natural mode of life. The men, in almost every instance, are of lofty stature, scarcely ever less than six feet in height, while the other sex are uncommonly diminutive. The early period of life at which the human form arrives at maturity in this generous tropical climate likewise deserves to be mentioned. A little creature, no more than thirteen years of age, and who in other particulars might be regarded as a mere child, is often seen nursing her own baby, whilst lads who under less ripening skies would be still at school are here responsible fathers of families. On first entering the Taipei Valley, I had been struck with the marked contrast presented by its inhabitants with those of the bay I had previously left. In the latter place, I had not been favorably impressed with the personal appearance of the male portion of the population, although with the females, excepting in some truly melancholy instances, I had been wonderfully pleased. I had observed that even the little intercourse Europeans had carried on with the Nukahiva natives had not failed to leave its traces amongst them. One of the most dreadful curses under which humanity labors had commenced its havocs, and betrayed, as it ever does among the South Sea Islanders, the most aggravated symptoms. From this, as from all other foreign inflictions, the yet uncontaminated tenants of the Taipei Valley were wholly exempt, and long may they continue so. Better will it be for them forever to remain the happy and innocent heathens and barbarians that they now are, than, like the wretched inhabitants of the Sandwich Islands, to enjoy the mere name of Christians without experiencing any of the vital operations of true religion, whilst at the same time they are made the victims of the worst vices and evils of civilized life. Apart, however, from these considerations, I am inclined to believe that there exists a radical difference between the two tribes, if indeed they are not distinct races of men. To those who have merely touched at Nukahiva Bay, without visiting other portions of the island, it would hardly appear credible the diversities presented between the various small clans inhabiting so diminutive a spot. But the hereditary hostility which has existed between them for ages fully accounts for this. Not so easy, however, is it to assign an adequate cause for the endless variety of complexions to be seen in the Taipei Valley. During the festival I had noticed several young females, whose skins were almost as white as any Saxon damsels, 
a slight dash of the mantling brown being all that marked the difference. This comparative fairness of complexion, though in a great degree perfectly natural, is partly the result of an artificial process, and of an entire exclusion from the sun. The juice of the papa root, found in great abundance at the head of the valley, is held in great esteem as a cosmetic, with which many of the females daily anoint their whole person. The habitual use of it whitens and beautifies the skin. Those of the young girls who resort to this method of heightening their charms never expose themselves to the rays of the sun, an observance, however, that produces little or no inconvenience, since there are but few of the inhabited portions of the vale which are not shaded over with a spreading canopy of boughs, so that one may journey from house to house, scarcely deviating from the direct course, and yet never once see his shadow cast upon the ground. The papa, when used, is suffered to remain upon the skin for several hours. Being of a light green color, it consequently imparts for the time a similar hue to the complexion. Nothing, therefore, can be imagined more singular than the appearance of these nearly naked damsels immediately after the application of the cosmetic. To look at one of them, you would almost suppose she was some vegetable in an unripe state, and that instead of living in the shade forever, she ought to be placed out in the sun to ripen. All the islanders are more or less in the habit of anointing themselves, the women preferring the aker, or papa, and the men using the oil of the coconut. Mahavi was remarkably fond of mollifying his entire cuticle with this ointment. Sometimes he might be seen, with his whole body fairly reeking with the perfumed oil of the nut, looking as if he had just emerged from a soap-boiler's vat, or had undergone the process of dipping in a tallow-chandlery. To this cause, perhaps, united to their frequent bathing and extreme cleanliness, is ascribable, in a great measure, the marvellous purity and smoothness of skin exhibited by the natives in general. The prevailing tint among the women of the valley was a light olive, and of this style of complexion, Fayaway afforded the most beautiful example. Others were still darker, while not a few were of a genuine golden color, and some of a swarthy hue. As agreeing with much previously mentioned in this narrative, I may here observe that Mendanya, their discoverer, in his account of the Marquesas, described the natives as wondrously beautiful to behold, and as nearly resembling the people of southern Europe. The first of these islands seen by Mendanya was La Madalena, which is not far distant from Nukahiva, and its inhabitants in every respect resemble those dwelling on that and the other islands of the group. Figueroa, the chronicler of Mendanya's voyage, says that on the morning the land was descried, when the Spaniards drew near the shore, there sallied forth, in rude procession, about seventy canoes, and at the same time many of the inhabitants, females I presume, made towards the ships by swimming. He adds that, in complexion they were nearly white, of good stature and finely formed, and on their faces and bodies were delineated representations of fishes and other devices. The old Don then goes on to say, There came among others two lads paddling their canoe, whose eyes were fixed on the ship. They had beautiful faces and the most promising animation of countenance, and were in all things so becoming that the pilot Mayor Quiros affirmed nothing in his life ever caused him so much regret as the leaving such fine creatures to be lost in that country. Footnote. 
This passage, which is cited as an almost literal translation from the original, I found in a small volume entitled Circumnavigation of the Globe, in which volume are several extracts from Dalrymple's Historical Collections. The last-mentioned work I have never seen, but it is said to contain a very correct English version of great part of the learned Dr. Cristóbal Suaverde de Figueroa's History of Mendaña's Voyage, published at Madrid, A.D. 1613. End of footnote. More than two hundred years have gone by since the passage of which the above is a translation was written, and it appears to me now as I read it, as fresh and true as if written but yesterday. The islanders are still the same, and I have seen boys in the Taipei Valley of whose beautiful faces and promising animation of countenance no one who has not beheld them can form any adequate idea. Cook, in the account of his voyages, pronounces the Marquesans as by far the most splendid islanders in the South Seas. Stewart, the chaplain of the U.S. ship Vincennes, in his Scenes in the South Seas, expresses in more than one place his amazement at the surpassing loveliness of the women, and says that many of the Nukahiva damsels reminded him forcibly of the most celebrated beauties in his own land. Fanning, a Yankee mariner of some reputation, likewise records his lively impressions of the physical appearance of these people. And Commodore David Porter of the U.S. Frigate Essex is said to have been vastly smitten by the beauty of the ladies. Their great superiority over all other Polynesians cannot fail to attract the notice of those who visit the principal groups in the Pacific. The voluptuous Tahitians are the only people who at all deserve to be compared with them while the dark-hued Hawaiians and the woolly-headed Fijis are immeasurably inferior to them. The distinguishing characteristic of the Marquesan Islanders, and that which at once strikes you, is the European cast of their features, a peculiarity seldom observable among other uncivilized people. Many of their faces present a profile classically beautiful, and in the Valley of Taipei I saw several who, like the stranger Marnu, were in every respect models of beauty. Some of the natives present at the Feast of Calabashes had displayed a few articles of European dress, disposed, however, about their persons after their own peculiar fashion. Among these I perceived the two pieces of cotton cloth which poor Toby and myself had bestowed upon our youthful guides the afternoon we entered the valley. They were evidently reserved for gala days, and during those of the festival they rendered the young islanders who wore them very distinguished characters. The small number who were similarly adorned, and the great value they appeared to place upon the most common and most trivial articles, furnished ample evidence of the very restricted intercourse they held with vessels touching at the island. A few cotton handkerchiefs, of a gay pattern, tied about the neck, and suffered to fall over the shoulders, strips of fanciful calico, swathed about the loins, were nearly all I saw. Indeed, throughout the valley, there were few things of any kind to be seen of European origin. All I ever saw, beside the articles just alluded to, were the six muskets preserved in the tea, and three or four similar implements of warfare hung up in other houses, some small canvas bags partly filled with bullets and powder, and half a dozen old hatchet heads, with the edges blunted and battered to such a degree as to render them utterly useless. These last seemed to be regarded as nearly worthless by the natives, and several times they held up one of them before me, 
and throwing it aside with a gesture of disgust, manifested their contempt for anything that could so soon become unserviceable. But the muskets, the powder, and the bullets were held in most extravagant esteem. The former, from their great age and the peculiarities they exhibited, were well worthy a place in any antiquarian's armory. I remember in particular one that hung in the tea, and which Mahavy, supposing as a matter of course that I was able to repair it, had put into my hands for that purpose. It was one of those clumsy old-fashioned English pieces known generally as Tower Hill muskets, and, for aught I know, might have been left on the island by Wallace, Carteret, Cook, or Vancouver. The stock was half-rotten and worm-eaten, the lock was as rusty and about as well adapted to its ostensible purpose as an old door-hinge, the threading of the screws about the trigger was completely worn away, while the barrel shook in the wood. Such was the weapon the chief desired me to restore to its original condition. As I did not possess the accomplishments of a gunsmith, and was likewise destitute of the necessary tools, I was reluctantly obliged to signify my inability to perform the task. At this unexpected communication, Mahavy regarded me for a moment, as if he half suspected I was some inferior sort of white man, who after all did not know much more than a typee. However, after a most labored explanation of the matter, I succeeded in making him understand the extreme difficulty of the task. Scarcely satisfied with my apologies, however, he marched off with the superannuated musket in something of a huff, as if he would no longer expose it to the indignity of being manipulated by such unskillful fingers. During the festival I had not failed to remark the simplicity of manner, the freedom from all restraint, and, to a certain degree, the equality of condition manifested by the natives in general. No one appeared to assume any arrogant pretensions. There was little more than a slight difference in costume to distinguish the chiefs from the other natives. All appeared to mix together freely, and without any reserve. Although I noticed that the wishes of a chief, even when delivered in the mildest tone, received the same immediate obedience which elsewhere would have been only accorded to a peremptory command. What may be the extent of the authority of the chiefs over the rest of the tribe I will not venture to assert, but from all I saw during my stay in the valley, I was induced to believe that in matters concerning the general welfare it was very limited. The required degree of deference towards them, however, was willingly and cheerfully yielded, and as all authority is transmitted from father to son, I have no doubt that one of the effects here, as elsewhere, of high birth, is to induce respect and obedience. The civil institutions of the Marquesas Islands appear to be in this, as in other respects, directly the reverse of those of the Tahitian and Hawaiian groups, where the original power of the king and chiefs was far more despotic than that of any tyrant in civilized countries. At Tahiti it used to be death for one of the inferior orders to approach without permission under the shadow of the king's house, or to fail in paying the customary reverence when food destined for the king was borne past them by his messengers. At the Sandwich Islands, Kahumanu, the gigantic old dowager queen, a woman of nearly four hundred pounds weight and who is said to be still living at Maui, was accustomed, in some of her terrific gusts of temper, to snatch up an ordinary-sized man who had offended her and snap his spine across her knee. 
Incredible as this may seem, it is a fact. While at Lahainaluna, the residence of this monstrous Jezebel, a hump-backed wretch was pointed out to me, who, some twenty-five years previously, had had the vertebrae of his backbone very seriously discomposed by his gentle mistress. The particular grades of rank existing among the chiefs of Taipee I could not in all cases determine. Previous to the Feast of Calabashes I had been puzzled what particular station to assign to Mahavi. But the important part he took upon that occasion convinced me that he had no superior among the inhabitants of the valley. I had invariably noticed a certain degree of deference paid to him by all with whom I had ever seen him brought in contact. But when I remembered that my wanderings had been confined to a limited portion of the valley, and that towards the sea a number of distinguished chiefs resided, some of whom had separately visited me at Marheyo's house, and whom until the festival I had never seen in the company of Mahavi, I felt disposed to believe that his rank, after all, might not be particularly elevated. The revels, however, had brought together all the warriors whom I had seen individually and in groups at different times and places. Among them, Mahavi moved with an easy air of superiority which was not to be mistaken, and he whom I had only looked at as the hospitable host of the tea, and one of the military leaders of the tribe, now assumed in my eyes the dignity of royal station. His striking costume, no less than his naturally commanding figure, seemed indeed to give him preeminence over the rest. The towering helmet of feathers that he wore raised him in height above all who surrounded him, and though some others were similarly adorned, the length and luxuriance of their plumes were far inferior to his. Mahavi was, in fact, the greatest of the chiefs, the head of his clan, the sovereign of the valley, and the simplicity of the social institutions of the people could not have been more completely proved than by the fact that after having been several weeks in the valley, and almost in daily intercourse with Mahavi, I should have remained until the time of the festival ignorant of his regal character. But a new light had now broken in upon me. The tea was the palace, and Mahavi the king. Both the one and the other, of a most simple and patriarchal nature, it must be allowed, and wholly unattended by the ceremonious pomp which usually surrounds the purple. After having made this discovery, I could not avoid congratulating myself that Mahavi had from the first taken me, as it were, under his royal protection and that he still continued to entertain for me the warmest regard, as far at least as I was enabled to judge from appearances. For the future, I determined to pay most assiduous court to him, hoping that eventually through his kindness I might obtain my liberty. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.